This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Compsognathus, as well as a bunch of dinosaur news. And Garrett and I are actually on vacation, so we recorded this a little bit early, and that is why Garrett is still sick. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> Exactly. Before we get into the news, just want to do a quick shout out. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate all that you are doing for us and for I Know Dino. And if you are a listener and would like to support I Know Dino, our podcast, then please visit us at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. All right. So I'm going to jump right in here. We've got a new article published in the journal Pure J, and it's titled, Cranial osteology of the ankylosaurian dinosaur, formerly known as Minmi, from the Lower Cretaceous Alaru mudstone of Richmond, Queensland, Australia. And it was written by Lucy Leahy and others. So, as the name of the article pretty explicitly tells you, they believe that a fossil from Queensland, Australia should be classified as a new genus. The specimen in question is currently known as Minmi paravertebral, and the holotype, which is a different specimen than the one they're talking about in the paper, was discovered in 1980 in Australia. In 1989, a much more complete skeleton was discovered, this time including a complete skull and a better preserved body, and that's the specimen that the article is talking about which is nicknamed the Marathon Specimen because of its location on Marathon Station. So just a little note that the authors wrote about the uniqueness of the specimen. They say, quote, Its skull is one of only a few in which the majority of the sutures have not been obliterated by dermal ossifications or surface remodeling, end quote. I thought that was really interesting because I had never realized that those big armory pieces on ankylosaurians could actually make it difficult to look at the fossils because as those ossifications take place, they actually make it kind of hard to see what was going on in the structure of the dinosaur, which, I don't know, I guess I would have never figured out without reading something like this. So the authors used 3D imagery, and they were able to model the nasal cavity, the endocranium, and the inner ear of the marathon specimen. And based on several differences that they saw, they believe that it deserves its own name. Cumbarasaurus iversi. Cumbera is the Maie, which is an Australian aboriginal, 
word for shield, and the species name honors Mr. Ian Ivers, who is the discoverer of the holotype. The name therefore means Ivers Shield Lizard, when you put it all together. According to Australian Geographic, which is kind of like National Geographic, I guess, Lawrence Whitmer, a co-author, said, quote, CT reconstruction revealed that Conbarosaurus had a more complicated airway than other dinosaurs, but less so than ankylosaurs from the northern hemisphere. The inner ear is proportionally enormous and unlike anything we have seen before in a dinosaur. It looks more like the inner ear of a turtle, end quote. Which is pretty interesting. And Steve Salisbury, another co-author, said, quote, I suspect this is the tip of the iceberg in regard to the hidden diversity that we've got for these sorts of animals in the Australian dinosaur fauna, end quote. So at the end, they are still calling the holotype Minmi paravertebral, but calling the second ankylosaurian dinosaur found in Australia Combarosaurus because it has enough different features to warrant calling it a different genus. We talked a lot about this kind of distinction when we were talking about Brontosaurus versus Apatosaurus and how Apatosaurus still exists. But if Brontosaurus ends up being different enough, then it will get its own genus. Either way... I thought it did get its own genus. Yeah, well, according that's one of the things. So there was a paper published where they said they thought it should get its own genus, but, I mean, not everybody agrees necessarily yet. It's still new. True. And I think the same thing applies here. I think these researchers have a little bit more on their side by looking at more features than just kind of the size of vertebrae and things like that. But nonetheless, it's it's still new. Keeping with our Australian theme, there's a couple in Queensland, Australia, David and Judy Elliott, who have spent the last 16 years finding the world's largest collection of Australian dinosaur fossils. And they've found bones from more than 30 individuals, mostly sauropods, and they have a natural history museum for their collection called the Australian Age of Dinosaurs. And every year, their museum has a three-week dinosaur dig with 13 diggers at a time, and they get guidance from the Queensland Museum. The couple started their dinosaur digs in 1999 when David found a dinosaur bone during a sheep muster. And the dinosaur was named Elliot after David and for a while was the largest dinosaur in Australia until another dinosaur nicknamed Cooper was found in Queensland. Since then, the couple have realized that they, quote, had a national treasure in their backyard. And it sounds like it's been a very fruitful adventure for them. Cool. Heading north a little bit into China... There's an article titled, A New Taxon of Basal Ceratopsian from China and the Early Evolution of Ceratopsia. It was written by Feng Lu Han and some others. It was published in the journal PLOS One, and they're reporting on a basal ceratopsian, which they believe is from about 160 million years ago in the late Jurassic, which as far as ceratopsians go, that's pretty old. And it is the second species of basal ceratopsian present in the upper part of the Shishuguo formation in Xinjiang, China. And that's the Chinese area that borders Russia in that northwesternmost part. It's named Hualian ceratops wukaiwanensis, and Hualian means ornamental face, referring to the texture found on most of the skull and Wu Kai Wan is Chinese for five color bay, 
for the area where the specimen was discovered. National Geographic has some really cool artist impressions of what its kind of bumpy, textured head would have looked like. So I recommend checking that out. And, quote, study co-author Jim Clark of George Washington University suspects that there's evolutionary holdovers from Ceratopsians' ancestors, which also sired the knobby-skulled pachycephalosaurs, end quote. So it's so early in the evolution of Ceratopsians that you can still see carryovers from other types of dinosaurs, which I think is super awesome. The fossils were uncovered way back in 2002, but were unidentified and stored with the other basal ceratopsian I alluded to earlier, called Yinlong Downsai, but they have now decided that they believe the two species are different enough after finding several unique features to Hualian ceratops, which are not present in any of the Yinlong specimens. So, this finding helps to fill in some more information about the history of ceratopsians and their origins. I haven't heard much about the region where this dinosaur was discovered before, which makes it particularly interesting to me. We've talked about some other areas in China that are really prolific, but I'm hoping that there's more research done in this area, more digs, because since they found two really old ceratopsians there, it seems like a good place to do some more digging. And also in China, there was a story that came out in the New York Times about a museum in China. So the city Pingyi in China, which is about 300 miles southeast of Beijing, has the world's largest collection of complete dinosaur fossils. And many of these fossils show evidence of feathers. The fossils are in the Tianyu Museum of Nature, which Guinness World Records says is the biggest dinosaur museum in the world, with more than 1,100 fossilized dinosaurs. The museum was founded in 2003, and many of the fossils came from the former head of a state-owned gold mining company. 120 million years ago, China was mostly dry land, but there's a lot of fossils, especially in the northeast, because of lakes and volcanoes. And though there have been many cases of fossil fraud in China, there are still many authentic fossils. And Zheng Xiaoting, the founder and director of the museum in Pingyi, said that people gave the museum the fossils voluntarily, though he has given donors money quote, uh, merely as a gesture, according to the New York Times, and that less than 3% of the fossils that he acquired before 2008 were altered, and most of the ones that were altered were returned to their owners. So it's pretty much all authentic bones in the museum. Jen Chiaoting has an interesting story. He quit school at the age of 16 to work in textile factories, and then in the early 90s kind of fell in love with dinosaurs, and that became his hobby, which he turned into a museum. It's not exactly clear where the money came from to build the museum, which cost at least $61 million. But because of the museum, Jen Chiaoting's name often appears on a lot of scientific papers, and he even has a late Jurassic bird named after him, Chiaotingjia Jenggai. It'd be nice to have $61 million to open a world-class dinosaur museum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, would be. Next in the news is a piece that was released at the 75th Annual Meeting of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology from Dallas, Texas that we've talked about a little bit in the past, titled Rare Direct Evidence of Angiosperm Consumption by Dinosaurs Based on Coprolites from the Kuiperowitz Formation in Utah. It was written by Nicole Ridgewell and others, but since it's from a conference rather than being from a journal, it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. But it's not really 
groundbreaking. So it's not, I don't, I don't expect this to be super controversial. So I, I think it's worth reporting now anyway. So what they're talking about specifically is two pieces of copper light that are both about 0.88 liters or about one quart in volume. And one's about 12 inches long by 10 inches wide or 30 by 25 centimeters. And the other is broken down into many small pieces. So it's hard to determine the size and copper light. You probably remember is fossilized dinosaur poop. And we've talked about that quite a bit in the past because it tells you a lot about what dinosaurs ate. And that can also give you some insight into their behavior if you know what they ate. So we've also talked about angiosperms and how there's a bit of a debate about how their evolution might relate to dinosaurs or other animals that were around at the time. And specifically in episode 40, we talked about an aquatic angiosperm and kind of talked about what an angiosperm is. But in modern terms, angiosperms are typically described as flowering plants, although the name angiosperm refers to the fact that they have an enclosed seed or fruit. So this isn't the first time angiosperms have been seen in dinosaur coprolite, but it appears to be the first evidence from Utah in the U.S., and it's pretty rare, so any evidence of this is always good to see and will help us get a better picture of what dinosaurs ate. So I found it interesting that the authors described the contents as angiosperm wood. I'm not sure exactly what that means. It's a very brief article, so... We'll have to wait for a peer review article or something to get a little more information. They also mentioned how they determined it was coprolite, which actually is the thing I found the most interesting. They said that they saw there were ground plant cells as well as fragments of plant tissue and angiosperm in the coprolite. But the most interesting thing is that, quote, extensive bioturbation is present, including many backfilled burrows, end quote, likely from, quote, coprophagous insects, end quote. And that would be something like a dung beetle burrowing through the dinosaur poop and then filling in behind itself as it burrowed, and then they can kind of see how that changed and all that kind of got fossilized with it. Just quite a unique way to pick out something being a coprolite rather than just fossilized plant matter. So they mentioned that since angiosperms formed in the early Cretaceous and they were very diverse by the end of the Cretaceous, they may have been an important food source for the herbivorous dinosaurs, including animals like Ceratopsians and Ankylosaurians, and may have helped them diversify or thrive. So it'll be interesting to see if anything is added to this when it eventually gets peer-reviewed. Yeah, and to switch gears a little bit, Geekology posted a photo of a baby blue heron claiming it's a, quote, dead ringer for a little dinosaur, and I guess technically it is a little dinosaur, and it really looks like what you'd think a dinosaur would look like. If you see the picture, it's posed with its legs bent and its mouth open like it's screeching, and we'll post a link on our blog so you can see it for yourself. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. Maybe our podcast should be called I Know Non-Avian Dino. That's not as catchy. <laughs> Is it? But I really don't know much about birds, so... You have mentioned, though, that maybe we should get into birding. It might happen. It seems inevitable. <laughs> but back to non-avian dinos. <laughs> well, kind of. So in our last episode, Garrett mentioned a Forbes article that listed 10 
gifts for dinosaur enthusiasts, and one of them was a hatching dinosaur candle. And I think that this gift could be good for any occasion, even the new year coming up. Maybe you want to light a candle for the new year. This dinosaur candle you can purchase on Firebox. Well, actually, maybe you can't light it for the new year because you can only pre-order right now. It'll be coming back in 2016. But you can pre-order it from Firebox for $45.59. The candle's an egg, and when you light it, the egg melts down to reveal a baby raptor. And here's the product description. It's a really entertaining one. You're likely under the impression that bringing dinosaurs back to life is a fiddly affair. You didn't get your GCSE in cloning using paleo DNA from either bones or the guts of mosquitoes in amber, and John Hammond never texted you back. Please don't cry. It's easier than you think. All you need is a flame in this hatching dinosaur candle. As the wax egg melts away, it slowly reveals the world's favorite prehistoric carnivore, a darling baby velociraptor. Not your average ornament. This Triassic treasure is sure to add a little life to your gaff. The best part, you have the opportunity to have this little fella imprint you as the pack alpha, ready to follow your every command. And under more info, it says, please note, sometimes life doesn't find a way. Dinosaurs are 100% extinct. <laughs> also, product features, as the wax begins to melt, a baby velociraptor is revealed. The velociraptor is not real. So a little tongue-in-cheek there. Pretty entertaining. Now on to the last little bit of news, and we've talked a bit about this before, but there's more details that came out about Jurassic World 2. The movie may take place in Costa Rica, since that's where Dr. Henry Wu escaped to at the end of the first Jurassic World movie. And that means that there may be some new dinosaurs, though Colin Trevorrow, in an episode of the Jurassic Cast podcast, quoted a line Dr. Alan Grant said in the original Jurassic Park. Quote, dinosaurs and man separated by 65 million years of evolution have been thrown back into the mix together. How can we know what to expect? End quote. He also said the next movie will have a larger story involving the dinosaurs, which we have speculated about, especially in our crossover episode with the Jurassic Park podcast. And that's where we wondered if dinosaurs would end up all over the world and maybe there would be mini stories around them. Yeah, that's what I'm rooting for. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty cool. For now, we know that Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard will reprise their roles as Owen Grady and Claire Deering, but we'll have to wait until June 22nd of 2018 before we can see the next film. I love that there's a specific date, <laughs> even though it's just almost three years away. Yep, something to look forward to. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. 
and dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So now on to our dinosaur of the day, which is Compsognathus. And one listener, Rosetta, via email, requested on behalf of her son, Ezra, that we cover Compsognathus. And it's funny because Compsognathus was actually already in the works, so worked out. So the name Compsognathus means pretty jaw or elegant, refined, or dainty. And there's only one valid species, Compsognathus longipes. Compsognathus lived in the late Jurassic, and fossils were found in Germany in the 1850s and then in France more than 100 years later. The specimen found in France was larger than the German one and was thought to be a separate species, Compsognathus corolestris, which is no longer valid. Also, in 1997, Virginia Morell renamed Sinosauroteryx prima to Compsognathus prima, but most people don't accept this. So there's only one valid species. The German specimen of Compsognathus was discovered in 1859 in Bavaria, in the same area that Archaeopteryx fossils have been found. Compsognathus longepes was named by Johann A. Wagner, who described it in 1861. The German specimen is 35 inches or 89 centimeters long, and the French specimen was found in 1971 by Louis Girardi. And Alan Bidar described it as a new species, Compsognathus corolestris, but John Ostrom, Jean-Guy Michard, and other paleontologists have classified it since as Compsognathus longepes. And one person, Quimby, said that the smaller German specimen was just a juvenile. The National Museum of Natural History in Paris acquired the French Compsognathus specimen in 1983. And the French specimen is 49 inches or 125 centimeters long. So this French Compsognathus, the larger one, weighed between 1.8 and 7.7 pounds or 0.83 and 3.5 kilograms. And obviously this is an estimate. That's a huge range. Yes. (laughs) I'm surprised it's so large. I mean, that's like a 500% range. Just depends on what parts of the specimen they found, I guess. Three pounds, plus or minus two pounds. (laughs) Compsognathus teeth may have also been found in Portugal, but it's not for sure. In 1998, Jen Zink said that there were 49 teeth found in Portugal that belonged to Compsognathus. They were not identical to Compsognathus longepes, since they have serrations on the front teeth and Compsognathus front teeth were unserrated, but in general there are similarities, so it's possible they're the same genus. The German Compsognathus had only two digits on its forelimb, so for a while scientists thought the Compsognathus only had two digits, but then the French specimen of Compsognathus had three digits, and so now they're thinking that the German specimen's third digit just wasn't fossilized. 
I'm pretty sure I've seen toys that still only have two. Oh, could be. <laughs> <laughs> One paleontologist thought that Compsognathus had webbed forefeet that looked like flippers. And in the 1975 book, The Evolution and Ecology of the Dinosaurs, shows Compsognathus as amphibious. However, John Ostrom said this wasn't possible since both the French and German specimens of Compsognathus were the same except for their sizes, and one of them had three digits, and for sure not webbed. The belly of the German Compsognathus had lizards, and Charles Mars thought that these lizards were an embryo. This was back in 1881. But then Franz Nowska in 1903 said no, it was a lizard. And Ostrom eventually identified the lizard as Bavariosaurus, which was a fast and agile runner. And that shows that Compsognathus was probably pretty fast since it was able to outrun a lizard, and it probably had good vision. The lizard is in one piece, so that means that Compsognathus swallowed it whole. Scientists used to think that they had found Compsognathus eggs since there were eggs that were found close by, but now they think that they're not Compsognathus eggs since the animals inside the eggs were not Compsognathus. And these eggs were only 10 millimeters long, and one of Compsognathus' close relatives, Cenosauroteryx, had preserved eggs in oviducts that were much larger, 36 millimeters long, so they think that Compsognathus eggs would have been larger. In 1868, Thomas Huxley compared Compsognathus and Archaeopteryx. And that was the earliest documented comparison of how non-avian dinosaurs may have evolved into birds that I've ever seen, and we talked about that a little bit on an earlier episode. Yeah, and then in 1978, John Ostrom described Compsognathus, and then it became one of the best-known small theropods. Compsognathus and Archaeopteryx have an interesting history. They have similar shapes and proportions, and two Archaeopteryx specimens have been mislabeled as Compsognathus for a while. Compsognathus, again, was seen as possibly closely related to birds, but now there's other dinosaurs that are seen as more closely related to birds, such as Cegnosaurus, Oviraptor, and Deinonychus. Oh, and just to add to what Garrett said about Thomas Huxley's proposal that dinosaurs may have evolved into birds, that was one of the first theories that dinosaurs were warm-blooded instead of cold. But of course, that has since become more nuanced, and scientists now, instead of calling dinosaurs warm-blooded or cold-blooded, talk about ectotherm and endotherm. Compsognathus is similar to some of the earliest dinosaurs, like the small theropods Herrerasaurus and Eoraptor, which was a bipedal archosaur from the Triassic 80 million years before Compsognathus lived, and they were similar in appearance and behavior. Compsognathus was a small bipedal carnivorous theropod. It grew up to be the size of about a turkey, though it's been described also as chicken-sized. This is due to the specimen found in Germany, the smaller one, which is now thought to be a juvenile. It used to be considered the smallest known dinosaur, but now there's smaller ones now, such as Microraptor. Interestingly, Compsognathus may have also been the dominant dinosaur in its area. Where Compsognathus was found in both France and Germany had lagoons and beaches and coral reefs and used to be islands. Other animals in the area at the time included Archaeopteryx and pterosaurs, fish, mollusks, crustaceans, but no other dinosaurs have been found, which may mean that Compsognathus was the top predator. Compsognathus had small, sharp teeth. It ate small vertebrates, possibly insects as well. The front teeth on the premaxilla were unserrated, and the back teeth were recurved and flattened. And because of the way the teeth were, that's what's been used to identify Compsognathus and its close relatives. We also know for sure that Compsognathus ate lizards, and there's that one with the lizard in its belly that it swallowed whole, but it may have also eaten small mammals. This is based on well-preserved fossils of its relatives, Cenosauroteryx. 
There's no evidence that Compsognath has traveled in packs or hunted to take down larger animals, though it wouldn't have been unusual for a creature that size to have that kind of social behavior. Compsognathus had a narrow skull with a long snout and large eyes. It had a long neck so it could quickly move its head side to side and could also put its head in undergrowth and pull out prey that was hiding. Its forelimbs were smaller than its hind limbs and it had three digits with claws. And it had long hind legs and long tails that it used for balance. Its feet were digitigrade, meaning it balanced on its toes. So its main foot bones extended the length of its leg and increased its stride, which helped it to be faster. One study in 2007 estimated that Compsognathus could run up to 40 miles per hour based on measurements and hypothetical weights of a few carnivorous dinosaurs. It may have had feather-like structures on its body, though none have actually been found, but some relatives like Cenosauroteryx and Cenocalioteryx had simple feathers preserved and they covered the body like fur. One relative, Juravenator starkai, had a patch of fossilized skin with mainly scales and some evidence of simple feathers too, but that may not mean that all dinosaurs in their group were covered in feathers. You can see a cast of Compsognathus at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History based on the fossils that Joseph Obendorfer acquired in Bavaria in 1859. Compsognathus appears in many children's dinosaur books because for a long time they were the only small dinosaur known. And you can see Compsognathus in movies like The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3. And in The Lost World, a character misidentifies a Compsognathus as Compsognathus triassicus, which combines Compsognathus longepes with Procompsognathus triassicus, which is a distantly related carnivore in the Jurassic Park novels. In the Jurassic Lego game, which Garrett and I played and talked extensively about on this podcast, Compsognathus is called Compies. And in the game Ark, there are wild and domesticated compies, and in packs they become aggressive and they attack, but alone they can be a pet. And they're also curious when it comes to humans, so if you play that game, then you can have a compie as a pet. So Ezra asked us a few questions about Compsognathus, and I believe we covered most of them, but he did want to know how a compie interacted with a velociraptor. And the answer is that they would not have interacted because Compsognathus has been found in France, Germany, possibly Portugal, so Europe, and Velociraptor has been found in what is now Mongolia. Velociraptor also lived during the late Cretaceous, and Compsognathus lived in the late Jurassic, so they wouldn't have overlapped at all. Compsognathus is part of the family Compsognathidae, which are small dinosaurs from the late Jurassic and early Cretaceous that lived in what is now China, Europe, and South America. Compsognathus was the only member of Compsognathidae for a long time, but it now includes a few other dinosaurs, such as Mirachia and Cynosauratrix. Again, skin impressions of Juravenator, Cynosauratrix, and Cynocalotrix show evidence of primitive feathers covering their bodies. And Juravenator and Compsognathus have evidence of scales on their tail or hind legs. Scientists debate on where Compsognathidae lies in the Silurosaur group, which is a bigger group, and some say that it's the most basal of Silurosaurs, and others say that it's part of Manoraptora. And our fun fact of the day is that the Chicxulub impactor was either a comet or an asteroid that was between 10 and 15 kilometers or six to nine miles in diameter, and Mars actually has a moon called Deimos, which is the Greek god personifying terror, and the same root word as the dinos and dinosaur, which is right in the middle of that size range. So the terrible lizards may have been taken out by a comet or asteroid that was the same size as the terrible moon of Mars, basically. <laughs> 
And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Celebrate the new year with us and check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. We'll see you in 2016. Thanks for listening and until next time. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader